Amen. Father, this day we extol your greatness as we behold your glory and our salvation. When we think of the heaven and earth, that we're moved to accomplish this incredible miracle. We recognize that Christ alone could be the one and the only one to mediate between us and holy God, to give of his own flesh and blood as payment sufficient for the wrath due our sin, to uh, to abridge the immeasurable divide between those who are lost and dead and unholy and rendered hell-worthy in their transgressions and sins, and unity, reconciliation, and perfect fellowship restored with the Father. How great you are, dear Jesus, because you have reunited us with the Father through your work on Calvary. How great you are, Jesus Christ, because you have done so by taking on flesh and the burden of our sin and the call of the Incarnation to fulfill the law and to die in our place. How great you are because you resurrected from the grave, declared victory over the last enemy and ascended to rule and reign forever. How great you are because your kingdom is increasing across this earth until it has holdings in every nook and cranny, till it covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And how great you are because the sickle of your truth has gone forth to reap for yourself a harvest of souls from every tribe, tongue, nation, every historical era, even here among us and this lowly few in this obscure corner of the globe unto the praise of your great name. How great you are that history is written from beginning to end by the Alpha and Omega, the author and finisher of all things and our faith. And it is you we extol and praise. Now, as we turn to your word, dear Jesus, we pray that you would send your spirit to awaken our souls, to appreciate and to understand the glories it contains and to equip us to glorify you more as a result of the fruit of this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. We have so much to thank the Lord for today and to glorify him for. And among the things that the Lord is worthy of our praise for, is equipping us to stand against the enemies of our faith. This morning we turn in our scriptures to 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 14. I encourage you to do so as we continue in our first Sunday, Communion Sunday a month series in 2 Peter. The title of this morning's message is Reckoning Perspective. There is a day of reckoning for all, and all will stand before the Lord, whether prince or pauper, whether saved or unsaved, and only those who are justified by the blood of Jesus, only those who are true Christians whose hearts have been transformed by the gospel will survive that day of reckoning and be welcomed into the fellowship of the Lord. This is the basic truth of eternity in terms of gospel realities of sin and salvation. However, this reckoning perspective does not only pertain to our assurance of heaven one day and salvation, but it also equips us with confidence to stare down formidable enemies in the meantime. It gives us the view of heaven when we witness the difficulties and the demonic adversaries of Jesus Christ and the antichrist spirit of the age that we face on a day-to-day basis. This was true in the case of the church, the first audience to which Peter writes and addresses his letter, but of course it is true in our case as well. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, under this title, Reckoning Perspective, is to equip the church of all ages and ourselves today to equip us to face our enemies with victorious confidence. 
We can do this, I suggest, from our passage today when we adopt the reckoning perspective that Peter prescribes. With that title and aim, would you stand for the reading of God's word today out of reverence and let us hear what the scriptures declare to us with power and immutable authority from the word of God recorded by the apostle in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 14. Here is the Holy Scriptures. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to distinction, extinction, excuse me, making an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. There are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We, God's people today, are a portion of His present remnant. His remnant, that is, His people who are covenantally bound to Him through the unbreakable chains of the blood of Jesus Christ and the gospel who worship Him, who are His church today, and who join with all true believers around the globe. In this, among, or in times such as ours, in the, among the present remnant of God's covenant people, we may not be deceived by our imminent enemies. We may not fall prey, though some do, and they prove themselves to not be in the face in the first place. We may not fall prey to the false teachers and their teaching through deception. However, it is easy for us, all of us, to, be, to grow discouraged at their apparent power. You may not be susceptible to false teaching, especially if you have a good foundation and are standing in the truth. But if you're anything like me, I suggest all of us are susceptible to being discouraged by the apparent power of the Antichrist forces in our world and the enemies that seem arrogantly and powerfully to rear their ugly head against Christ. Peter writes to a small number the elect of his day, much smaller than our representation in the earth. And he gave them sufficient tools to stand under conditions like this. He wrote to a small number of believers in a pagan world with imposing authorities and intimidating circumstances, equipping them to stand against an antichrist horde. Peter wrote to encourage and equip his hearers. The gospel appeals to the testimony, Peter's 
uh, in this, the apostle, excuse me, appeals to the testimony of God's accountability program for the wicked through the ages. In other words, what will give the church confidence in Peter's day or ours to stand against the Antichrist horde? Well, to get that reckoning perspective. We, as the church, as the church needed then, we need to be encouraged and equipped by an appeal, by a recognition, an understanding, writing upon our souls the testimony of God's accountability program for the wicked throughout all the ages. Citing examples, Peter cites examples from the pre-creation even, when Satan and his demons fell, to the corrupt city-states of Sodom and Gomorrah. As Peter cites these examples, and we behold them and what they proclaim and how they encourage us, we are better prepared to face our own battles with this evidence of God's reckoning track record. Peter is giving us a, a track record of God's reckoning authority and power and moments of that reckoning in real-time history and in, time, and in transcendent outside of time circumstances as well. In these instances, a few that Peter references, history records that the condemnation of the Lord is not idle and destruction is not asleep. Verse 3, And in their greed they will exploit you, these false teachers will, the apostle writes with false words. But then he encourages us in this verse as well by saying in the second half, there, that is the false teachers, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The condemnation against the error and the enemies of the gospel is not idle. It is active. It is not asleep. It is awake. It's easy to doubt this when it seems like there's a suffocating atmosphere of godlessness and wickedness and unrighteousness in which we live. Peter sets us straight, again, by appealing to a reckoning perspective. In instances... Or in these instances, history records that the condemnation of the Lord is alive and awake and His destruction is imminent. The prophetic indictments, that is, the case against the sinful rebellion of men, have no statute of limitations short of repentance before the cross of Jesus Christ. In other words, when the summons from the court of the Almighty goes out that you are guilty and have fallen short of the glory of God, be you an individual or a nation, there is no statute of limitations on that judgment. No matter when your guilt is paraded or displayed before all to see, that day of reckoning is inescapable. The only way to be free from that indictment is to bow before the lordship, authority, and redeeming power of Jesus Christ and to trust His blood to wash away the guilty verdict issued from heaven. And the enemies of Christ, smug and bold as they may be, have that same guilty verdict that once caused you, believer, to shake in your boots and weep before the altar of God's mercy. That same boot-shaking edict remains over their head, whether they realize it or not. And that judgment, that indictment, that condemnation, and that destruction is not asleep, is not idle, it is active, it is imminent. This is the reckoning perspective. And only a fool lives as if it were not so. But history records in the Bible through and through the stupidity of doing such a thing. From Genesis 3, that's when man was cast out of the garden, to the proclamation of final judgment, whole book of Revelation, the Word of God stands as immutable as its author, as immutable as its author in condemnation of the idolaters. 
That is, the pending destruction and condemnation of the ungodly is as unchanging as God is. In other words, His truth and His proclamation of righteousness will not change. And it's as powerful today as the day it was written. It's as powerful today as the day when fire rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter illustrates this point by citing several historical examples, including the excommunication of the apostate angels. It's when Satan and his demons were kicked out of heaven for defying the glory, power, and authority of Almighty God. Peter illustrates this point by another example, the calamitous judgment, the great flood in Noah's day, which destroyed the ancient world. And third, and the third citation today is the fiery graves of the Sodom and Gomorrah citizens who were destroyed in a moment where something like a nuclear blast from probably an exploding asteroid leveled the cities of the plains and even archaeologists record now a seven or eight hundred mile radius that leveled the civilization and rendered the fields infertile for an estimate of eight centuries, eight hundred years. The fields were turned to salt and could not support life, not so much as a stock of grain, let alone an inhabitant or a citizen of the once proud and decadent Sodom and Gomorrah. Each of these situations features a twofold act of God in his decisive reckoning. Number one, the salvation of the remnant, Lot, Noah. Number two, the judgment of the wicked. These instances feature the salvation of the remnant, the judgment of the wicked. These passages, passages teach us that without repentance, we are our own worst enemy. But in Christ, we have nothing to fear. And if we should fear, it would behoove us, it would help to maintain, to gain back that reckoning perspective. So saints, in case you need this message today, let us glean a reckoning perspective for our present challenges from the apostles' instruction. Let me give you one application right off the bat. If you follow the news at all, you can't escape the reality that, there are, that a war has broken out between one great world power, Russia, and one, as we uh, see it, victim nation on its border, Ukraine. And devastating images are starting to come across the news feeds. And we're watching this in real time in our information age, aren't we? And perhaps you've even had a twinge of fear. For the first time in a long time, I thought about nuclear weapons in the last two weeks. Why? Because thinly veiled threats from men apparently with the power to do so told the West, hey, you better back off. We have 500, whatever it is, nukes at our disposal to level the population centers of America, a button's push away. And suddenly we see, in light of this perspective, how the enemies of God, as represented in all this confusing mass of sin that leads to world global conflict and tensions and everything that follows, suddenly we see how vulnerable we are and how dangerous it is to live in a fallen world, just in case we were a little more naive three weeks ago. What if you were falling asleep one night and noticed a strange glow on the horizon? You check the internet real quick and turns out that that glow was a nuclear bomb dropped on the Twin Cities area and it was just minutes before that fallout wave was going to rush over your own home. What is the message? Well, the message is twofold. Number one, we deserve it. Number two, Jesus Christ is Lord. And if I go out in that wave, I'm going out glorifying Him. And it might be a good idea 
to get a few people in your car and start sharing the gospel. You see, a reckoning perspective not only helps us to face our enemies, but also helps us understand when great calamity strikes, like a flood or a war or an atrocity, like an Assyria raised up as the hammer of God to bring judgment against the northern tribes, like a Babylon to haul the apostates into captivity and Judah, or God forbid, but if he did so, it would certainly be just a nuclear bomb in the population center of this state. It's helpful to maintain a, rec a reckoning perspective that no button is pushed independent of the finger of God and no destruction ever comes upon man outside of what he deserved. And it is just the mercy of God that allows us to exist in our fallenness in a relative free and happy state in the meantime. And the only guarantee to be free from the wickedness and the calamity of the judgments of God is to know that in the afterlife, I'm under the blood of Jesus. And I am a citizen of a kingdom that will never be destroyed where perfect righteousness rules the streets of gold and where the mansions are made with the material that the Spirit of God has worked as evidence of the gospel in the hearts and lives of those who are the called and redeemed and the future citizens of the new heavens and new earth. These are the kind of perspectives that a church who is a hated minority needs to maintain a strong witness in the face of harsh enemies who can really do something about it if they decide to. Freeze your bank accounts, throw you in jail, send a nuclear bomb, imprison or kill you. How do you stand in light of these kinds of enemies? Well, Peter says, in so many words, I submit with a reckoning perspective. Peter illustrates three things, condemnation, destruction, and salvation by three incidents and then a comparison and contrast in our text today. Condemnation, destruction, and salvation are illustrated by Satan's rebellion in verse 4. Another way you could phrase this is gospel triumph despite judgment reckoning is illustrated also in Noah's flood. And then thirdly, condemnation, destruction, and salvation are illustrated in Sodom and Gomorrah's demise. And then fourthly, if we get to it this morning, Gospel triumph, despite judgment reckoning, are also illustrated by contrast to the uh, angels and by comparison to irrational animals in verses 10b through 14. So that's a basic outline for our text today. Condemnation, destruction, and salvation. Or to make it more simple, judgment and salvation are illustrated by Satan's rebellion. First Peter, or 2 Peter 2 verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, pause, and then another if statement. Quick word about highlighting your Bible. I don't know if you highlight your Bible. I used to not do it. I kind of despise the practice. And we've joked about this in the past. Why do people highlight their Bible? Well, that's a verse that really stuck out to me or is really meaningful. And we joke like as if one verse is more important than the rest of the Word of God. Of course, that's a fallacy. I have found, though, in recent years that it's very helpful to highlight my Bible, to give myself visual cues to follow the amazing way the Scriptures are laid out. And in this case, what I did is I took a blue pencil and I circled four if statements. And then I took that blue pencil and 
circled a then statement. Because what we have here, saints, is an argument. It's a construction. And if you understand the way the apostles are arguing, the force of the truth really strikes home. So note these four if statements. If you have a highlighter, you could highlight them if you so choose. Verse 4, if God did not spare the angels, then we have in verse uh, 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, then verse 6, if Gomorrah, or if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and then verse 7, if he rescued righteous Lot, and then we connect that with verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You see, salvation and judgment, based on this argument, it's, he's building a case. This is, they call it a rabbinic argument. It's citing a cumulative multiple examples to make his argument stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's what we're charting here. So first argument or first premise, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, of course, the implication being then, does the Lord not know how to rescue the godly from trials? You know, connecting it to that verse 9. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment? In other words, who is a more formidable enemy to the people of God? Vladimir Putin or Satan? Who is a scarier enemy to the church on the border? We were talking about this recently because Aunt Sue has connections over there in that region. Who's a more formidable enemy? An aggressive warmonger, I interpret Putin to be, or Satan himself? Oh, the answer's obvious. No mere man can hold a candle to the power or intimidating wickedness of Satan. But notice, Satan was cast out before this world was even created. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, then do you think God will allow a great world authority today to go beyond what he has allowed him to in his actions? Need we fear the wicked of our hour? Yes, however much they might be inspired by Satan, when we know that God with his, speaking anthropomorphically, which is to ascribe to God human characteristics, which he doesn't have because he's a spirit, but takes his gigantic foot and kicks Satan in the rear right out of the realms of glory. You see it in your mind that way. If God is that powerful, then that reckoning perspective is easier for us to maintain. This is the if-then argument. Now, there's a historical reference here. The historical reference is actually something kind of outside of time. It is the assured destruction, and it is the evident judgment against the essence of evil recorded in Scripture. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, which details in a little bit more specific way the day of reckoning for Satan himself, as it were. Revelation 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael. Kids, who's Michael? Does anyone know? It's in heaven. His name is Michael. What is he? Yeah. What kind of angel is he? An archangel, which means he is like... Defender? Defender? Oh, yeah, I'll take that. He's a, a lead angel, right? So a head angel, Michael, archangel of glory. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels... So you see here, you have two categories of celestial beings. On the one side, you have God's archangel. We'll call, it the, we'll call this category the elect angels. On the other side, you have the fallen angels, as it were, the dragon and his minions. War arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. 
and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, and the, and the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. As far as we can tell, History records when this revelation was given that the church was facing or would face shortly intense persecution. But what the, one of the purposes of John's his vision served, though, was to give him that reckoning perspective. John is blown away by the power of Jesus Christ so much so that when he sees his eyes aflame with fire and that two-edged flaming sword proceeding from his mouth and this blinding light white robe and his golden sash and so forth, he is struck as though dead before this power and presence of almighty, resurrected, ascended, king of kings, ruling and reigning Jesus Christ. And then he is lifted out of the realms and boundaries of time to be given a perspective from heaven's eye view of the situation that's going on on earth. When John got done with that revelation, how much more confidence do you think he had seeing things from the perspective of the imminent and already accomplished victorious work of Jesus Christ, especially when his eyes are opened to the devil and his minions being kicked out of glory even before this world was made? Could you possibly survive that vision with any legitimate doubt that Jesus Christ is sovereign and no enemy will stand against him? This is the appeal that Peter makes when he says, listen, keep a reckoning perspective. Think about salvation in the, of the elect and the destruction of God's enemies in light of God's sovereignty over Satan in the first place. If God kicks Satan out of heaven and, he hells and allows him only so much leash, as we see in the book of Job, and has prepared a fiery lake for him to drown forever in, with his minions on that final day, when he has done with his, has no use for him anymore and brings in his kingdom in a full, consummate, manifest way, the new heavens and new earth. Be encouraged, saints, by this historical reference. This happened in a, this happened in a measure before time began. This will happen in the future at the end of history, and it is a reality even now. By the way, Jude, there's some incredible cross-reference between the book of Jude and verse 6 references this as well in a similar context. You can study that on your own time. So what's Peter's application? Shock and awe. His first example is a cosmic reality predating the creation and post-dating the creation. And with this encouragement, the church is equipped to stand. It involves circumstances so far above and beyond our imagination that encourages us that whatever earthly, tangible, mere men, enemies that we face in our day, God is certainly powerful enough to destroy them in a moment. This is the transcendent case. This is the cosmic example. This is a reference to forces so big and so wicked that we really can't imagine them in full. Yet we know for certain 
from this record of history in the scripture that Jesus has conquered them. Can he not conquer every other enemy? Yes, he can. The gospel triumph, despite judgment reckoning, is made stronger when we consider Satan's rebellion. Our, our uh, reckoning perspective is increased. Secondly, our reckoning perspective is increased, or the message of salvation and judgment is illustrated by Noah's flood. This is the second reference in the if-then argument in 2 Peter. So again, 2 Peter says, if the angels were kicked out of heaven by God's sovereign hand, and then he says in verse 5, if he, the sovereign God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and then he's, uh, after that he gives his third if-then statement, referencing Sodom and Gomorrah. But let's pause there. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, and then of course we connect it to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Turn with me for this historical reference to Genesis chapter 6. And let's just get a couple words recount or documenting Noah's flood. Kids, remind us, about how long did it take for Noah to build the ark? 100, 100 plus, we assume in the... Con 120, very good. We assume in the context that a century plus was a construction time frame for this incredible ark that would carry the seed crop of the creatures and the replenishing the earth after this whole-scale destruction. Noah, seven members, eight in, in total of his family. Do you think it would be a challenge for Noah during those 120 years to keep the faith, to stay encouraged? The scriptures describe him, Peter himself does, as a herald of righteousness in our text. And that means that he boldly and with authority proclaimed the truth in a world that only had eight people worth saving in. Only eight people who were justified by faith in the future coming Messiah. Only eight Christians, so to speak, if you were to speak in the big picture terms of covenant truth. Only eight covenant members in the church of Jesus Christ in a world of unimaginable debauchery. And the reason that God hasn't sent that same flood again is because he, in his providence and sovereign hand, has not allowed this world to get as wicked as it was, I suggest, I submit, as it was in the days of Noah. What gave Noah the encouragement, in spite of this difficulty, being one of eight in a world more wicked than we've ever seen since? Well, it was this. It was the revelation of God. Genesis 6, 11, God speaking, or, or the, uh, excuse me, Moses recording. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, now God is speaking, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with the violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with this pitch. By the way, this picture of ark associated with salvation carries all the way through the Bible. This is one of the first arks, and we note, scholars have pointed out that Moses' little basket was something of an ark. It was a similar shape, however, you know, so much smaller, but it was covered with that pitch. 
and it was carried safely through the waters of judgment. The Nile would be turned to blood. It would be a message, a proclamation of judgment to the people. That which once gave life now is flooded with death. Yet in spite of this judgment, God carried this ark and this one, Moses, through these waters and used them to deliver his people again through waters, the Red Sea, which proved to be an instrument of judgment against God's enemies, you know, the Egyptians that pursued them. And that was just going over once again this pattern that speaks of salvation and judgment and is meant to encourage our reckoning perspective as we behold its truth. And that's what's going on in this text here, Genesis 6, 15. Specific instructions for the cubits and size, dimensions. And then in 17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That's the judgment. Here's the salvation. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, and of course, more instructions for the seed crop of the new world. So this is the second appeal. This is the second premise in Peter's argument. He says, if God, in His majesty, in His power, in His glory, and in His sovereignty, judged the earth such that He destroyed everything, save two of every kind for replenishing and more for sacrifice among the creatures, and just eight human representatives, nevertheless, preserved His covenant and accomplished His purposes, and how much more? Again, then, if this is true, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Is your trial bigger than that of Noah? whole earth's going to flood in a little while. Is your trial bigger than that of Noah? There's only eight confessing believers and a world of unimaginable wickedness. No, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Oh Lord, how long? Noah must have cried out. How long will you suffer with this wickedness around me? I'm sure Noah was personally victimized and his family, I'm sure at some point by the wickedness around him. What court could he have gone to to adjudicate his case? What higher magistrate could he have made an appeal to to say this person stole thus and so or committed this horrific crime of violence or violation against me or my family? No one would he turn to his son. There's only eight righteous people and the rest of the earth entirely corrupt and degenerate. Are your trials greater? No. But God, nevertheless, was able, even under these circumstances, to preserve and to rescue and to keep the godly, though the trial was so great. So this is the reference that Peter points us back to, to keep that reckoning perspective. Peter draws further application in the next chapter of these very moments. In 2 Peter 3, we see the attitude of the ungodly, a stark contrast with those who look to the story of Noah for its reckoning perspective. How do the ungodly interpret events such as we have them? Verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Scoffers, unbelievers. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning. And then this is what Peter says. They cover their eyes, cover their ears. They scream like toddlers in their rebellion. Verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago 
And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Peter goes on to say, though, in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A few weeks ago, the family and I, we flew to Florida and we're standing on the beach for a good portion of our time. I don't know if you've been on an ocean beach, but I've seen people, you know, kind of come uh, through that colonnade of buildings along the shoreline and see the beach for the first time. And you can visibly tell on their face that they're awestruck with the magnitude and the grandeur and this vast expanse of water. What is a Christian way? What's a biblical way? What is a true historical way to interpret the ocean side if you're to stand on the beach? Let me submit to you one reality. When you look upon those waves which more, with more force than you could ever imagine, coming towards you, going to the beach and no further because God has prescribed their limit right there. When you look into the horizon, however many miles your well-trained eye can until it tails off into the, uh, you know, fades off into nothing. When you sail out there in your little boat and all of a sudden you get a whole new respect for the chaotic nature of the sea, what are you witnessing? You're witnessing an artifact of the judgments of God. Most of this earth is covered with water because at one point, most of this earth was so wicked that it deserved to be drowned. Most of this earth is covered with water because at one point it was so wicked, it deserved to be drowned. And God in his mercy preserved small portions of land from that sea, but left it there as an artifact of his power and his judgment. Do you doubt that the tyrants of our day will have their day in court? Why don't you stare at the sea for a while and get that reckoning perspective? Why don't you read Genesis chapter 6 and shudder a bit with God's power to level at one fell sloop, one calamitous event, one moment of his visitation, the reckoning that wickedness deserves. And as you fear him in light of that truth, why don't you thank him with hearts reassured by the assurance of your salvation through Jesus Christ that you will escape that judgment on the final day. We don't come to a mountain that is shaking with the wrath of God and firestorm and cloud and tempest and voice so loud we cover our ears. But we come to Mount Zion and the festal gathering of the saints. The book of Hebrews tells us. Why this peaceful mountain? Because Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and he has washed away our sins. The flood of his judgment, baptism pictures this, renders us clean through his work on Calvary and renders us new. He is our art carrying us through what we otherwise deserved. Salvation and judgment are pictured and Noah's flood in the increase our reckoning perspective. Third example, Sodom and Gomorrah's demise. Salvation and judgment are illustrated by what happened in, to Sodom and Gomorrah. Back in our main text, 2 Peter 2, verse 6, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, We'll continue to seven. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, there's that parenthetical statement of verse eight, and we connect that to verse nine again. Then, 
The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. For this reference, turn back with me again to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19. What does Peter have in mind? He has this record of the demolishing of the cities on the plains. And you may recall, not too long ago, we were in this text in our Genesis series. Genesis 19 records these events. And we see in particular, verse 15, this sequence unfolding. As morning dawned, the angels, remember these are uh, agents, divine agents, sent from God himself to rescue Lot from this imminent destruction. These angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Good idea or bad idea, kids? I think it's a good idea that Lot was lingering in the city or a bad idea? Why? Why should Lot get out of there? Tell us what's going to happen, kids. What's going to happen to these cities? That's correct. He will destroy them with fire. But he lingered, Lot did. What an idiot. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Why? The Lord being merciful to him. God is merciful to us idiots. And they brought them out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills. One of the sovereign reasons why Lot is not a stand-up fellow, really. We don't look to him as a great hero of the faith. You know, remember that song? I don't know if you heard it growing up on Dare to Be a Daniel, Dare to Follow Him. I'd never heard a children's, like Christian children's album that's like Dare to Be a Lot, Dare to Follow Him, Dare to Sleep with Your Daughters, Dare to, I mean... It gets really bad really quick. We don't say that we don't sing that kind of thing. Why? Well, because Lot is an illustration of the far-reaching mercies of God, not the heroic nature of the human spirit. If God, if the city was this wicked and Lot was this weak and God can still save him, that's an illustration of the mercies of our Lord and the extent that the gospel is able to save. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning, and for Lot on this day, they were in the form of angels being sent to grab him by the wrist and forcefully remove him from an area that was about to become the scorched earth campaign of a just and wrath-filled God. The sun, verse 23, had arisen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Reference to the Trinity there. The Lord reigned from the Lord, sulfur and fire from heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Abraham looks upon this in the morning. Verse 29, so it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Judgment and salvation are illustrated in Sodom and Gomorrah's demise. Destruction. This is a picture of hell. You know, we live in a day where Christians are ashamed of the clear teaching, quote-unquote Christians are ashamed of the clear teaching of the Bible. 
And one of the big stumbling blocks for the modern mind is God's judgments. And you'll find many complicated and sophisticated, in some sense, intellectual arguments and uh, you know, theologies that try to minimize or disregard the notion of hell in the first place. Do you think you could ever convince a citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah that hell does not exist? Do you think you could ever make your case through the reasoning of man and through your twisting of scripture and your vain imaginations that your sin is not really worthy of fire and judgment and that fire won't really fall one day? No. Why? Because the reckoning perspective of Sodom and Gomorrah is that sin deserves a fiery demise, and so it was. And it's a foretaste of hell. And I submit to you, it's just a glimpse and just a, 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 a tinge, a twinge, a taste of what our sin, because of its great atrocity against all most holy God, truly deserves. And this is the perspective, the reckoning perspective. God will judge in due course. He has prepared a lake of fire. It's that picture of judgment. Just like the lake, so, it, so to speak, covered the whole earth that was wicked, so a lake of fire is prepared for all the wicked who do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This goes for an angel, Satan and his minions, and it goes for a proud, unrepentant mocker of the Holy One that raises his fist in defiance against God even today. Whether he be an individual or whether he, you know, of some significance like a king or a president or whether he be somebody who no one knows of, just an average citizen of country, Y, X or Y or what have you. Noah's, or Sodom and Gomorrah's demise reminds us that destruction is imminent but deliverance is by the mercy and power of God. And again, if God has done this in Sodom and Gomorrah, the argument is, how much more will God not preserve us? This is the message, 2 Peter 2, once again. If, he, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and if he rescued Lot under these conditions, then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So there you have kind of the central crux of Peter's argument and his encourage and equipping for the church. Condemnation, destruction, salvation are illustrated. The reckoning perspective is magnified. Gospel triumph despite judgment reckoning is clarified when we see these uh, these effects or these examples of God moving in days of reckoning, provisional, if you were, will, or occasional comings of the Lord in history. The overthrow of Satan, Noah's flood, Sodom, and Gomorrah are three examples. Well, Peter goes on to continue to make this point. After making this case by historical references, then he, does, then he continues to make his case, illustrating wickedness by comparison and contrast. In 10b, he says this, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. This is a different kind of argument here. It's an argument by contrast. And it goes like this. Angels do not presume to judge men because they fear, the, even though they know men are wicked and they know the truth of God, they defer to the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the judge. Why? Because they fear the Lord that much. By contrast, these other unbelievers, 
the rebel, the sinner who's blind to the glory of God, the concept of the fear of him does not enter his soul. They, on the other hand, are like irrational animals. Whereas the angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce blasphemous judgment against the Lord, these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Now, because it's not really a good illustration for mixed company, it's kind of awkward and embarrassing. However, it really illustrates the point. You may have a story, have heard a story about how things can get kind of embarrassing at the zoo. Animals are not conscious of anything that is associated with being made in the image of God. In other words, innately, by God's grace, to some degree, we still retain something of the consecrated purpose, the holiness and dignity, even in our, the fabric of our being that is akin to the image of God. There are certain things we do not do in full public view. Apes, primates, animals, on the other hand, they really could care less. It doesn't enter into their consciousness. But you see, the further you get from the fear of God, the closer you get to an unreasoning beast. The further you get from the fear of God, the more you get to an animal, to thinking according to your base instincts. These, the scriptures say, are born to be caught and destroyed. What do we do with irrational animals? You know, if you've got a bear problem, it just keeps coming back. doesn't matter if you shoot it in the butt or spray it with pepper spray or do all this other stuff. Finally, you get to the end of your rope. I don't care what the DNR says, and you have to pull a, put a bullet in them. Creatures born of instinct, or creatures of instinct, are born to be caught and destroyed. That's how you ultimately solve a bear problem. Well, independent of God transforming us into his image, we are a bear problem. We live according to our instincts, and we rummage through the trash, and we trespass God's law all over the place like a brute beast. And man, are we irreverent. Man, are we wicked. But all the while, we pretend like we're awesome. And when we do so, we're blaspheming about matters which we are ignorant. You can put it this way. Ignorance plus pride equals blasphemy. And it's all over the place. And when you hear it, these statements about the reality of things, the nature of things, or an open display of debauchery, pride parades come to mind, or this affirming notion for every sexually deviant, you know, association or identity that the world puts forth. What is going on in our culture today? Well, we're moving in this trajectory. We're on the slippery slope towards irrational beasts, if not there already. Peter describes it this way. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. Sin no longer in the closet, but paraded in the streets like the day of Sodom and Gomorrah. We can relate to Lot in some degree. Why? Because those who entice unsteady souls are out there, eyes full of adultery, insatiable in their sin. They want to feast with you, but ultimately they're just reveling in the daytime, showing off their sin, shameless in their whoredom, in their adultery, in their flagrant immorality, their debauchery, and their wickedness. And this is what has happened, yes, in our case. But what does Peter say to give us perspective? This is animal-like behavior. And what does he call us to do? He calls us to be mindful of those celestial beings that he has created for the sole purpose of giving him glory, who recognize that his power and the manifestation of his amazing resplendence and shining glory is such 
that the seraphim who are created to sing nothing but holy day in and day, day out have wings strategically placed over their eyes. So as it were, they cannot, for they would certainly be incinerated in the moment if they were to behold the presence and the power and the glory of God. And this window to the revelation of God's power and holiness is open to the prophet in Isaiah chapter 6. And what does he cry? Woe is me. I am an irrational beast. You know, if we put the two and two together. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. But redemption, pictured in that coal touching his lips, which is a picture of the codifying, you know, that singeing power to redeem and to make holy of the gospel. Pictured in this meal today, the precious, cleansing, powerful agent of Jesus' blood touches the prophet's lips, prophet's lips and he says, Here am I, send me. And he's reconciled and commissioned and sent. And his feet become beautiful with the message of good news to proclaim to the captives, to the irrational beasts, lost in their trespasses and sins. You can be free. There's a day of judgment coming. But there is an ark prepared in the future Messiah if you'd repent and turn to him. This is the picture that Peter paints for us. And we'll leave it there for the most part and pick up at a later time on some of the case, on more of the case that he makes to give us this uh, reckoning perspective. But that last phrase, let me just draw your attention to that as we transition to communion. Speaking of the false prophets, the ungodly generally, the rebels against the Lord, it says, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. That's the last phrase of our passage today. You know, those, there's two kinds of people in the world, as we have become fond of saying in our Genesis series, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman are those who place their faith that through the lineage of the called and elect line, the messianic a family line, a Messiah would come, fully God, fully man, as we we're studying with the older kids today in Sunday school class, the hypostatic union, which means one person, Jesus Christ, two natures, fully God and fully man, necessary for our redemption. There are those who place hope in that. They are the covenant children. But there are those who remain the seed of the serpent, like irrational beasts, who are better described by these other modifiers in the text, bots, blemishes, irrational, blaspheming, etc. And for them, they are the accursed children. Who can deliver us from the curse? Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And how he, can he deliver us from the curse? By becoming a curse for us. The scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And even in those pictures of old, when the bronze serpent was lifted up in a pole in the wilderness, it was a picture of a curse. One day there will come a perfect, sinless man who will be made a curse for you. The wrath of God will fall upon him. Your sin would be placed upon his shoulders. He would be lifted up. So all who look upon him, the perfect sinless one becoming a curse for you, might be the covenant, beloved, adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. No longer the accursed children. At this covenant meal today, which is a celebration of Jesus Christ and his death for us, becoming a curse in our place, to move us from accursed children to beloved adopted sons and daughters, we have represented the active ingredients, the powerful force that made this transition possible, the shed blood of the perfect one and the broken body of the man taking on, or the God taking on flesh, Jesus Christ. In communion today, we are reminded by Peter 
that we have a new identity now because of what Jesus Christ has done. A final passage, which is one of my favorites, and I love to close a lot of messages with, it would, it would appear. 1 Peter 2.9. In contrast to the accursed children, who are we? Peter answers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's the day of visitation? That's the day we've been talking about, that day of reckoning. Who will glorify God on that day? Those who've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Who will cower on that day and pray that the rocks would crush them? Those who remain like irrational beasts lost in their trespasses and sins. This meal today illustrates that you've been welcomed to the table of the Lord. But as we've said before, if you are not a believer, there stands, as it were, two cherubim, two angels commissioned to guard the presence of the holy with a flaming sword that says, this table is barred from you. The only way that you can enjoy what this table represents, sweet sit-down fellowship, table, presence, almighty marriage supper of the Lamb, reunion with Jesus Christ, that's what it's symbolized here, is if someone took that sword for you. When Jesus was pierced in his side and that blood and water flowed, that secured your entrance past the flaming sword of God's judgment into communion again, the Eden conditions and better that's represented at this table. With that in mind, let me tell you this, fear the Lord. Only those who've placed your entire fortunes in the blood of Jesus Christ are welcome at his table. But if you have been saved, if what I am preaching to you resonates with your soul, I know I'm a believer, I do trust Jesus Christ, then come boldly and with joy before the presence of God as the scriptures tell us we do so through his torn flesh into the Holy of Holies. A vision for communion this morning. Let us pray and then we'll transition to the Lord's table. Lord, we thank you for this glorious opportunity that we have to behold your word. We pray that you would use this service in spirit and in truth to glorify yourself and to equip your church. We pray that you would give us the perspective, Lord, of judgment and salvation, that reckoning vantage point that will help us to navigate the trials that you call us to endure and to boldly proclaim with confidence the message of hope in Christ alone among those who are perishing. We pray that as the table is open for us who believe that we would just appreciate the sweet fellowship we have, certified, signified, and sealed in this meal that we will enjoy in perfect manifest glory one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And even in our meal later, may we continue in this fellowship, believer to believer, recognizing that Jesus Christ has made us new, a royal priesthood, a new nation, a holy people called to show forth his glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.